there's an importance in agriculture, but there's also an importance in human relationships, whether it be with um, with trade or or um, the the workers that you have and the seasonal workers. And so, I just love the the myriad um, kind of uh, of people and and influences that I have. This is over a glass. I'm Shante Whale. Kiora. Julian Grounds is chief winemaker at Craggy Range Winery, situated in the majestic North Island of New Zealand. Western Australian born, he dived into wineries and vineyards at age 17 and has continued to globe trot and gain winemaking experience ever since. Now at the helm of such an iconic winery, Julian carries the responsibility with an effortless grace and a little pep in his step. Hi, Julian. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Chate. How are you? Yeah, glad to be here. Oh, thanks so much for making the time from all the way over there. Julian, the last time we were hanging out, we were cruising in your car, marvelling at the lyric genius of Sade's smooth operator. How have you been since then? Yeah, that was uh, that was in the previous world, wasn't it? I remember this uh, this time very fondly. But, um, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, haven't been over to get uh, other side of the ditch, but from a, in a positive sense, it's been um, a really special place to be over here uh, in New Zealand and, and been blessed by a couple of amazing vintages as well. Yes, thank goodness, because we've had some challenging ones here in Australia and we need to um, we need to sell some juice. So it's really great that you've had some great vintages. Can you take us back, though? How did you come to be a winemaker and what was your life like growing up in WA? Yeah, so so kind of uh, grew up on the south coast of Western Australia, a town called Albany, which is uh, actually situated in the wine region of the Great Southern, so I haven't been there. Um, and I, I kind of was, my family, extended family grew up uh, on the farm, so we kind of had that agricultural background. And luckily enough, in the house, we always had a kind of food and wine culture. Um, parents were both very much into to cooking and wine, so it was this kind of logical um, matching of those and I always like had this kind of feeling that I would I needed to be around an element of creativity and science. So I couldn't really put my foot down to what kind of career. Um, and then uh, there's a little honest truth in that um, the school I could study at was over in Margaret River where my sister was living and um, I was a very, very keen surfer um, and still am and, and I thought, well, this is a, a nice thing to kind of um, combine some uh, unique uh, study and also get out there in the waves and it, was, um, it all worked out really well from then. Amazing. You even like, I mean, you've done so well. You know, I know that you're a pretty humble guy, but ever, ever since you got into wine, you won a scholarship to Burgundy. What was that time of your life like moving from Australia to France? And, and tell us a bit about that experience. Yeah, it was actually, um, it's probably, to, yeah, you know, at the recipe in Hofbolg, it was probably the most important thing that ever happened to me because, you know, answering the previous question about growing up in Albany, it was both um, the luckiest kid and probably uh, in terms of a beautiful, um, unique place and very isolated. But that isolation brought with it probably a lack of exposure to a wine breadth of influence. And so when I went to Burgundy, it was actually in the region of Puy Fusay. So I was living in the town of Fusay and I was only 20, uh, 21 at the time when I went there. And you know, English was very fragmented. I'd done a bit of the old pocket um, French back in back in Margaret River, but I think it really opened my eyes to to a whole another level of culture that I hadn't been exposed to in terms of um, you know round table lunches, two hour lunches, and then this, and then and then following on from that, this breadth of wine. And you know, I'd been classically trained at Lewin, and it was it was such an important step in my my learning and 
and kind of setting me on the start of the path. And then all of a sudden I was in these, you know, 400, 500-year-old wineries in, in Fusay and uh, it kind of just started to expand my, my knowledge and gave me a thirst to kind of go on that, that, that kind of global um, trend after then in terms of trying to find um, out new places to work and, and, and new regions to learn from. So what was the experience like from, you know, in terms of cultural? I mean, you're saying that it's, it was a big change for you, but how was, I mean, like how was even the language? Did you did you learn to speak French while you're there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the language is pretty funny considering how, how bad my my uh, French was and, and how little English was spoken. But we were picking every morning the vineyard and then going into the winery and, and that was with um, mostly mostly young French people and, and you know, it was really it was that learning on the go and then, you know, gradually start hanging out socially and um, and I, ga- I just gained it so quickly in terms of an understanding. Like I, I got kind of one of those things where it left me as soon as I, as I left the country. But, um, yeah, there were so many layers of, um, of learning from that culture that I took on in a short space of time. Do you ever, like, look back at kind of making Chardonnay over in Burgundy and do you apply that ever or it doesn't, it's completely defunct because of a different, completely different region and terroir or do you ever kind of look back and, and, and learn something, you know, use the things that you learned from that time? I think that you you hope that, and I definitely did from me, is that it starts to challenge your existing thinking if it's different to what you had learned in the past and that starts to form part of your narrative. And I, and I believe that that's probably, um, that's helped me along the journey in that having worked in a couple of different countries around the world or, or several and different regions that they all kind of become this, um, this subset of your own um, style is that, that you've taken little bits from these. So it, it's a long-winded way of saying I definitely would have taken something from, I can't remember what that was right now, but it's probably, it's probably helped to define what my style is at this point. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then you you went, I mean, you travelled all over, but then you were senior winemaker for quite some time at Giant Steps in the Yarra Valley. What did you learn from the very talented Steve Flamsteed? Yeah, Flammo, he's probably the the most um, loved human being in the industry, isn't he? He's he's an amazing guy and and lucky enough to um, to still be very, very close friends. Um, I I think Steve, and for for many of us that have uh, been mentored by Steve, he he has that amazing ability to – to understand, you know, fine wine, and then also understand the the risks that need to be taken to to evolve style and be a style leader, and and he's got that appetite for constant trialing and evolution, and that was a really big thing that I was motivated to go work for him because I kind of had that feeling myself that oh, I always want to I want to try or I want to learn I want to gain more, but there's also that part with Steve is that, and I'm guessing it, it's probably down to his chef upbringing is that he loves flavor and he loves balance, and so. I've really that's been something that's hard to kind of um, I've taken away from there is that wines have to be delicious as well as if you're going to look at it not maybe not polarizing but they have to you know have personality and, and to stand out from the pack but they also they have to be delicious they they ultimately consumed and that was definitely something that I think we were we we're achieving you know in that giant steps days when the wines did start to garner a lot of attention around that 2014 15 16 period. Yeah, sure have. And they've just gone through the roof now. But um, it's great to see that, you know, you've continued that on at Craggy. You spent some time in Central Otago, but it's a huge decision to move your family to New Zealand. So how did that role as chief winemaker at Craggy come about? How did you decide you were going to uproot your family and move to New Zealand? 
Yeah, it was it was it was a really large one, like you said, and, and probably not one that we saw coming. Um, and, but you know, very fortunate that it did. Uh, they, you know, I was lucky enough they they kind of reached out, and we. I think the, for me, the the biggest one was that I I've always wanted to kind of take this journey of making you know fine wine or making um, amazing wine off amazing sites to to as large as it could go. And you know, with Craggy, they they were seeking someone that had that appetite and maybe in in the age bracket and of of someone to myself. And and that's where it kind of worked out is that I I just wanted to make wine off these vineyards when I came here. You know, especially the Gimlet Gravels. Sarah and, and ultimately the Tamuno, in particular the Pinot Pinot down in Martinborough, it was it was so amazing with how they were planted, and so it was one of those ones for us as a family where we were thinking this opportunity that don't come about very often. It's probably not logical in terms of like you know we didn't have friends or family here, but. I think that there was always going to be that case of what if we didn't go down that path and see what kind of wines we might be able to make or the, or the knowledge that we could gain in this kind of life experience. Yeah, of course. I mean, and what is the lifestyle like for a young family there? Yeah, it's, it's really good. I mean, you know, New Zealand is, is all, all as it looks um, and for everyone who's visited, it's a very friendly and beautiful country and, and easy to travel. So, you know, fortunate enough to get to the snow and, and we live on the ocean and the kids kids absolutely love it. And from a cultural sense, you know, having um, the understanding and, and the learning um, of, uh, of Maori culture through the schools and, and through my wife's work, it's been probably something that we didn't anticipate would become such an important part of our life as well. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you're such an outdoor person. You're a bit of a surfer and skater and you snowboard. So it really does seem like the perfect place, let alone, like you said, getting your hands on all those incredible iconic wines that Craggy Range make. I mean, your mouth must have been just drooling when you saw the facilities and everything that you had to play with, right? Yeah, a bit of a kid in the candy shop. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and, and definitely um, they were really you know, supportive of um, some of these kind of ideas and, and questions I had when I brought over here and, you know, been fortunate enough to add to that through through um, concrete fermenters or artisan coopers um, from Austria and, and France. And and then, you know, the, the I think the biggest one is they've been really supportive of the, the slow style change or the um, the methodology to how we're farming that, that I've been really um, uh keen to bring across to the company so that's that's worked out really well in terms of the quality of the wines has hopefully reflected that um and i feel really supported and and very lucky as you mentioned to have these resources i mean it's not just a couple of hectares we have you know 80 85 um, hectares on the gravels of quite incredible high density fruit and then we have a bit more than that of pinot noir down in tamuna and, and and for me, anyone to have that that much amazing um, quality fruit at their disposal, it, it's quite incredible. I think my first vintage here in 2019, I made 45 different ferments of Pinot Noir and, you know, that was to make just two wines. So you can see the breadth of experimentation and, and kind of understanding of clones that I, I could kind of fall out from that. Of course. Gosh, yeah, you can definitely get your hands dirty in uh, in that first vintage. Um when you talked about a little bit about your approach to land, I'm assuming that means that you've, you've been, I mean, I know you champion kind of sustainability and, and um, kind of looking for the future and, and, and how has that played out since your time there? Yeah. So, so definitely um, 
it's been you know the the uh, the start the commencing has been through the um, traditional space of organics and and we've slowly rolling that out across um, all our vineyards and and definitely the first step to that was the removal of um, glyphosate and through undervine cultivation but I think the great thing is that that you know in New Zealand that's you know it's it's taking that that spread far and wide in terms of that philosophy and so I think for for us we're very much um, on the plate with a lot of other people and that, you know, organics is just the start and, and now we're starting to integrate regenerative practices as well and, and, and they're fortunate enough that through my wife that have a, um, a friendship with Mimi Castile and that's been a real eye-opener and a benefit for us in, you know, looking at things like biochar and, and the integration of cover crops and what have you. So I think the future will definitely be a consolidated approach more so than just a traditional certified approach, but definitely you have to nail the basics first. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and you are in a spot that uh, is pretty lucky, Hawke's Bay and Martinborough. You know, you've got some really amazing sites. Marlborough and Central Otago have drawn a lot of it, the worldwide attention, but what makes Hawke's Bay and Martinborough so unique for winemaking versus the rest of the world? Yeah, and, and and you know the benefit for us is that they still do garner a lot of attention and, and bring the eyes over New Zealand. Uh, we we went to Martinborough um, from the outset as as a probably a point of difference in particular for a Sauvignon to Marlborough. And as if you go down there, it's a very, very idyllic and, and peaceful place. It's, you know, this, the, the township itself is quite small. Um, the valley that we're in, the Tamuna Valley, is quite striking. But it's, it is cool climate viticulture. There's significant cool winds that come off the Antarctic and whip through. And, and that flowering, they, they can provide um, adverse conditions, which means that we do get quite small crops in the Penoir. And, and the level of savouriness and intensity of wine is really evident. Uh, but I think that that's that, that savouriness that comes into the Pinots doesn't exist anywhere outside of kind of maybe the old world, and I love that, and I love the structure. And the Sauvignon is is not just your traditional fruit bomb; it has this salinity and this salivating acid structure because it is a bit cooler than the Marlborough and, and less kind of obvious. And I think that's that sophistication I like. We come up to Hawke's Bay; it's the stones. It's the, you know who else is growing in just pure rock, you know, not many people. It's it's a very unforgiving environment and the stones go for 40 metres and it's just that 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 kind of overlays this level of savouriness and minerality into our Syrahs um, that I wasn't used to seeing and, and it's the wines I like to drink and I think it's the, the conducive with food and experiences that are long table experiences and that's what I love about them and I think that they're not, always obvious and that's really cool as well because um there's a bit of element of patience that's involved in growing and making them and the the unforgiving nature can be really hard when you grow here but ultimately i I think that you can take a gimlet gravel sarah and you can take the soul to restaurants in the world or wherever we go and it it doesn't look like it's come from anywhere else Mm. yeah very true it has its really unique personality and it kind of combines a little bit of new world, a little bit of old world savory fruit. Like it just has a bit of everything going on in it, doesn't it? It's a great wine. Yeah, and 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 then that's 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 definitely how I feel about that wine is that it is it's a complex and, and evolving wine that is um is experiential and it's a it's a um it's a beautiful one to make. Yeah. Lucky you. <laughs> what, <laughs> Julian, what's the best part of your job? And what is the part that you detest the most? I mean, and then I know that's a hard question, but there's got to be some real highlights and some bits you really don't look forward to. Tell us about those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, it's great. I mean, the, the, the best part is that um, 
you know, it, it's an amazing business in terms of set up in this thousand-year-old family trust. So you, you just have so much clarity and, and there's no kind of sense of urgency about getting things done. So the decisions, they're, they're thought thought out and they are for the long term. And then that encompasses amazing vineyards and amazing wineries. So I, I feel like the luckiest guy in the world in terms of being a custodian for, for however long it may be and, and in the small part of the craggy narrative. The worst part, well, <laughs> the last two years, uh, not being able to see anywhere else, it's probably not been the most positive <laughs> thing from a, uh, from you know, a, a travelling um, essence, and and you know, our isolation is is both beneficial and and sometimes has its. Um, you know its negatives and drawbacks, but yeah, you know I'm honest. I'm, I'm honest about that. I feel very fortunate to have been here through through this um, through the pandemic, and and I understand when when the world opens up that there'll be that chance again to to engage. Yeah, absolutely. There will be. And I thought you were going to say something like cleaning out the vats or something like that, but it's true. It has, <laughs> it has been, um, it has been a tough time. And and uh, my last visit to you guys was before um, before the whole pandemic happened and, and uh, yeah, I'm so glad that I got there and I, we absolutely lived it up for that time. Well, I did, you, you, you worked, but. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'll I'll just put um, P and L's are always not, not, not the most fun thing to do, are they as well? (laughs) (laughs) Julian, you ducks the Len Evans tutorial, which is an accolade that will follow you forever, but it does make you part of an elite group of tasters. What was your secret at that time? And how did you ducks that incredible tutorial? Yeah, well, Adrian Sparks will tell you it's because I went to bed early every night, but don't believe a word that man says. But um, no, I think I, I think uh, you know we everyone feels very very fortunate to get uh, invited, and I, I actually felt like the whole time that I'm just so lucky to be here. And yeah, there's an element of study, and it, that's required if you want to um, if you do want to take it serious. But I, I put my success probably down to um, just really good judging mentors and people like Philip Rich and Steve um, who'd helped me out a lot with judging in the early days and and probably in that environment. And then the most important thing is just the drinking a wide breadth of wines, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're right. You're lucky enough to see some of those wines that you think might only be once in your lifetime. And if you have access to them, yeah, for sure. I mean, some of the DRCs that I tasted was the first time I've ever tasted them, and I was like, "How am I supposed to know this?" <laughs> yeah, and I, and I think you you probably realise that you're living like fantasy land, and so the, you don't want that experience to be about um, a competitive experience. It needs to be um, a totally experiential and enjoyable experience. And as as the people know who do it, and they all say the same thing, it's actually that cohort that you form out of it because you feel like you've just gone. You've just had Disneyland for a week with just 12 people and um, and then you've got to give the keys back and, and that's the last time you get to go. Yeah, devastating. They talk about the Len Evans come down and it's a real thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is, yeah. I think I bumped into Jim Chatto at the airport and I was probably having a mid-strength beer and that was about as rowdy as the celebrations got. So. <laughs> um, you know, winemaking can be hard and especially with um, the responsibility you have um, on your shoulders. Why... Why do you keep doing every day? What what you know? How's winemaking changed your life? And and what are, what is what keeps you coming back every day? For oh, yeah, it's, it's a, that's a really good question, and and hopefully something that we all ask ourselves, um, not just in the wine industry, but oh, I think it's a it's a really fascinating industry in terms of um, that the 
there's an importance in agriculture, but there's also an importance in human relationships, whether it be with um, with trade or or um, the the workers that you have and the seasonal workers. And so, I just love the the myriad um, kind of uh, of people and and influences that I have. But I think now it's really evolved into me, um, and I'm fortunate through Craggy that, that it's the network of people that I get to engage in and. People over here like Helen Masters and Warren Gibson and Blair Walter that, you know, I have these regular regular contact and they're all my, you know, close friends now. And they, they're people I've looked up to for many years and now I can we can kind of learn together. And I just feel very fortunate to, to have found myself in that position. I don't know how I got here, Shantae. I probably feel like I've fluked, some, fluked something along the way or, or convinced something that I can do. Something, but you know, it, it is very much for me now that um, I, I found myself in this um, this access to this network of brilliant minds and, and overseas minds as well, and and that I it, I am just constantly being inspired and and constantly um, having that internal pressure of I just want to I want to get to next year because I want to trial that and I want to make that and I want this to be better and hopefully that's something that I can kind of um, pass on to to the young guys that are coming up and working with me. Yeah, absolutely they can. And I'm sure that you would think that you maybe fluked your way there, Julian, but you're an incredibly talented winemaker. And just because you've got this easy breezy way about you, uh, you certainly don't want to second guess you when it comes to, to anything when it comes to wine. But um, what are you most proud of in your career so far? Um, oh, I, 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 felt, I felt really proud um, seeing some of the initial responses to our 19 prestige wines, in particular the Araha. And, and I think, um, you know, I know that you and I tried that wine together in the early stages. But, you know, Pinot's always always been something that I felt um, is probably the closest to my heart. And and probably for Craggy, it had potentially shat in, sat in the shadow of um, some of the other wines. And, and probably just to see that that has now created a lot of momentum going into the 20 that, what we do and and what how we're farming that now and and how we're making it is is really in the right direction for the the long term legacy of that wine. Yeah, and exactly that. I mean, I've been lucky to see a little bit of back vintage uh, Martin Brapino lately, and it just has such a long life ahead of it. And it's great to see some older examples now. So you're right; that's only going to continue to to. Um, just get better and better each year, I think. I, th- I think it's Martin's Burt is a really special place for Pinot Noir and, and something that I drink. Um, as you know, Craggy is one of my house Pinot Noirs and uh, I yeah, I wouldn't say no any any day of the week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, and, look, I should add as well, like, you know, uh, you know ducting the LET was something from a personal point of view that you can only do it once and, and yeah, I'll, I'll never forget that, but it, you know, hopefully it's the years to come of, of some of the wines that we look back and drink that has just as much importance. Absolutely. Well, I think you're doing an incredible job over there, Julian, and I'm really looking forward to when you get to come back and see your family and friends over here as well. I ask everybody on the podcast if you could only drink three beverages for the rest of your life, what would they be and why? Yeah, so so definitely like I've I've gone I thought about this long and hard and, and you know I've just gone with wine. I think I've only got three drinks and that's what I love drinking. And I think um you know I would have to go with you know, with Jacques Salos to start, it's my wife's favourite wine and and um God, you know, the fact that a champagne can take you on such a breadth of journey um still blows my mind. Um, you know, maybe the version original is like just, you know, probably what the greatest 
wine with bubbles than I've ever tried in my life and, and fortunate enough to get a couple of bottles over here every year. Um, so you got to start, you got to start the night with something with bubbles in and, and that wine is just how it happens to transcend um, all the wines around it in, in terms of that style is just amazing. Um, Secondly, probably um, Pierre Auvenoir and probably the Van Jean. I was I was really fortunate on on the trip actually after the Len Evans to to go to Pierre Auvenoir's house and have um, dinner with his family and, and a tasting for about eight hours. It was the most memorable night of my life actually, um, with my wife and and several other friends and a couple of guys who'd worked for me in Australia and. Um, we he did all the wines blind, and I think we finished on a '79 Vanjon, and it was just um, yeah, it was it was actually a lesson in the the intellect and the understanding of a quite a brilliant man, and, and the research that had gone into to getting to the point of making those wines. And then yeah, I, I think I think lastly, I'd have to be quite gluttonous, and because if I don't have a Pinot on there, I think Steve will will actually phone me up and abuse me. <laughs> So I, I said, you know, probably to Main and, and one of our holdings from um, Mazzini, I, I think that, you know, Liwa Bizwa is just, you know, probably the most profound wine personality in terms of her, what she's done in the past and what she continues to do. And, you know, I can't afford to drink the wines, but they pop up every now and then if you've got good friends. And they're always, they're always thought provoking, not just the sheer quality thread. And so you're going to get me, you're going to let me drink it every day. So <clears throat> I thought, why not go out on top? Absolutely. And you're right. If somebody else is bringing it to the table, how can you say no? That night at Auvenoir sounds unbelievable. They have, the Vinjons have been some of the wines that I think, you know, over time as well, just they last a lifetime. And, you know, you can, you can transcend, like you said, just generations and generations and think, my God, what was happening in the world at this time? And I can't believe I can still taste it. And these wines are so alive. So, um, gosh, three really strong. And I have to say your wife has very, very good taste with Salos. I think we'd get along really well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good and expensive taste, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Only the best, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. You, you're definitely set with those three and, and – I only would expect the very best from you. So it's been so nice to have you on the podcast, Julian. I still dream about the day I get back to visit Craggy Range. Um, but in the meantime, thank you for sending me all my vintage T-shirts. They are much love and uh, I really appreciate it. And I hope that we get to see each other soon. Yes, absolutely. And don't worry, they'll, they'll keep coming. But, yes, hopefully very soon. That would be amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for spending the time with us and take care of yourself over there and we'll see you when you uh, get over the ditch sometime. Cheers to you. Thanks, Shanta. Appreciate it. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at overaglasspod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.